Hello. Hi. Uh, so welcome back to the Weirdest Thing Podcast. Yeah, we're back. Yeah, we're back. We're back and it's usual. spooky season. <laughs> it is. And actually, before we get started, I want to, because it's spooky season, I'm going to do a little bit of self-promotion. Okay. Uh, before I forget. So we got a few days left until Halloween. And uh, Wait, hold on. Is this going to come out before or after Halloween? This will come out before Halloween. <laughs> ah, okay. I was like, because that's going to suck. Okay. Yeah, this will come out on Friday. And I believe uh-huh. Halloween is Monday. So you've got it two is. more days before Halloween. And if you want to read one... One of my short stories for free. My story, basically normal, is in the Dark Matter Magazine Halloween Special Edition. Um, hey, that's cool. And that's free online uh, until or through Halloween. So, all right. Yeah. So if you go to darkmattermagazine.shop, um, you can find my story. So fantastic. Uh, and it's it's uh, one of my more like splatter punky stories. So just you know, be aware. There's you know, there's some carving up of eyeballs and things like that. Good grief. Okay. Well, since you, well, since you mentioned that one, yay. And since you're right, the show is going to come out on Friday. You can still see my performance of the show that I'm doing, which is called Opinionated Slut. We're streaming it starting Thursday. So you've missed out on Thursdays, but you can still catch, you know what? This is my show. So I'm just going to push my, I'm going to push my (laughs) show. You can catch me Saturday night. Uh, You can visit our website at dukecityrep.com to find out more about how you can stream. Um, and if there's any faraway friends that are like, hey, I would really love to check this out, but I'm not available at 7 p.m. Mountain Time on Saturday, shoot me a message and we'll hook you up with, with some linkage to get that done. Um, but cool. yeah, come and check it out. It's a it's a really cool show. I'm super proud of it. And I think I think everybody should see it. Yeah, I, do, I saw it, I guess the first opening night. No, you saw it the second night. Oh, no, that's right. I saw it. Yeah, that's right. I saw it the second night. Yes. It's a very, very good show. Thank you. Very, uh, like, funny, but also, like, definitely is going to stick with you kind of show. Yeah. Yeah. It's... it's a dark yeah. comedy. We're, let's say that. Right. Which oddly, even though they're very different, I would say my story in the Dark Matter magazine Halloween special is also kind of a dark comedy. But very it's cool. a much it's a it's a much gorier story than yes. opinionated slut. So okay, fantastic. Um, who are you? My name is Scotty Milder. I think yes. I already said that. No, you didn't. Okay. Well. No, you just were like self-promotion. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, weirdest thing, self-promotion. Uh, because I flagged it. I don't think you did. I don't know. You can fact check me in the editing okay. of this. Uh, but that's Scotty Milder. I'm Amelia Poro. We're your hosts. We're excited that it's spooky season. I'm here with my spooky lantern that's giving me a little orange glow and my mug of hot cocoa and my dog who is super restless. Um, <laughs> who, Scotty, I'm going to go open the door for her. Hold on. Okay. Wait. Okay. Hold on. My other question is how, how spooky is your story? Not that spooky. Okay. Okay. Good. I just didn't uh, wanted to know if I needed to like batten down the hatches. No, it's not that spooky. Okay. I'll be right back. Welcome to our show. Welcome to our show. It's a good show. Big, big shoe. It's really cute. She just, I'm going to send you to the horse food factory. She literally just walked outside <laughs> and then came back in.
<laughs> I swear to God. Are you fish? Okay, hold on, hold on. Welcome to our show. Welcome to our show. It's a good show. I was like, now that she's in, I'll close the door. But I feel like she's going to be a cat today. Yeah, well, she's just going to. She's dog. She's going to do her dog things. So. Yeah, she is. Okay. All right. Anyways, um, let's get started. Let's uh, dive in. So, yeah, I, I think I'm going first this week. You are going first this week. And I'm going to start with a bit of a cold open. Okay, fantastic. And we should say we are doing like spooky season stories. Uh, both of us are. So. <laughs> what if we were like spooky season? And then I was like the history of the taco. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we're not doing that. No history. Unless there's something spooky about tacos. I don't think we're talking about tacos. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, cut ourselves off at the knees in terms of like right. food origin stories. But I don't think that that's what we're doing today. That is not certainly not what I'm doing. So let's go all the way back. Okay. To Exeter, Rhode Island, uh, in March of 1892. Okay. So there was a family, uh, the Browns, uh, husband George, wife Mary Eliza, and their seven okay. kids. Seven. Seven. Well, yeah, it was Rhode Island in the yeah, 1800s, I, you know? yeah, that's actually not that many. So, yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, uh, in 1883, Mary Eliza suddenly took ill, the, the mother. Oh, okay. And over the course of the next year, she kind of wasted away and then she finally died. The next year, 1883, uh, their oldest daughter, Mary Olive, also she took ill. Okay. And, she, and it was very similar. She started wasting away fatigue she was coughing up blood etc and then she died a few years passed and then suddenly the second oldest their son the brown family son a guy named edwin he also started taking ill okay Uh, and then it was quickly followed by his younger sister mercy and she declined very rapidly and she ended up actually dying and this was in 1892 uh, january of 1892 so she was the third in the family to die Mm. Well, at this point, you know, people are trying to figure out what, what's happening to this family. Like, why is everyone dying? And mm. of course, the neighbors, George's neighbors go to him and they're like, you know, I think we know what it is. Here's what we need you to do. Okay. We need you to dig up your family, your dead family, and we're going to like check them out because we think what's happening is that one of them is a vampire. Okay. So this is... The story of Mercy Brown and the vampire, the New England vampire pandemic. Okay. Okay. I'm here for it. Yeah. Okay. So let's, uh, let's talk about vampires. Okay. So vampires or like vampire like things have existed in all sorts of world mythology, basically forever. But the version of like what we think of as a vampire, like Count Dracula, you know, that kind of thing. This is really like a pretty European thing. Okay. Uh, specifically, we're talking like kind of Southeast Europe, Eastern Europe, Slavic countries, Greece, areas around the Mediterranean. That's kind of where our notion of the vampire kind of comes from. Okay. And most of the folklore kind of goes back to like the 1700s, maybe earlier, but it's kind of in the 1700s that a lot of the oral traditions start being kind of recorded. Mm-hmm. So in European folklore, vampires are evil beings usually or often created by witches. Um, Huh, really? Yeah. Uh, But they can also be the result of a suicide or like another mortal sin. If someone dies in the state of mortal sin. Okay. uh, Without uh, being, like, I'm not Christian. I don't know how it works. Like how you get unsinned (laughs) or whatever, but like. (laughs) Um, But if you die in a state of mortal sin, you, you could become a vampire. These beliefs were so pervasive in Europe 
that it would often, or I don't know how often actually, but sometimes it would lead to mass hysteria and even like public executions. So kind of like the Salem witch trials, but with vampires. Dang, okay. So there are certain attributes that people apply to vampires of this European sort of tradition. Mm -hmm. It does definitely vary. (laughs) It does definitely vary from place to place. Um, But usually uh, like a vampire, like our whole, (laughs) excuse me, our whole idea of like. (laughs) We're a mess. We really are. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) All right. Okay, we're ready. Okay. <laughs> um, so interestingly, like the like all the goth kids have it wrong. Hmm. Vampires historically were not like pale. Um okay. like so all the white face paint goth kids, like you guys are you guys doing it wrong. You actually need to like bust out the rouge because vampires were noted to be bloated, ruddy in appearance, purplish, often with like purplish skin. This is all because they were like recently feeding on blood. Right. So they're all like yeah, they're all full of yeah. blood. They're all Ooh. full of blood. They're all yeah. blood bloated. Blood bloated, exactly. <laughs> Might be our episode title. We'll see how things go. <laughs> Often you could find the blood like seeping from the mouth of the vampire. Like they're so okay. full of blood, it's just coming out of orifices. Uh-huh. Um, people would hear chewing sounds in the grave. That would be a sign of a vampire is like down there chewing. Trying On to chew its what? Way out. Okay, trying to chew its way out. Got it. Mm-hmm. Now, how do people become vampires? Well, like in Slavic folklore, it was like if any body, if like a corpse was jumped over by an animal, like if a dog jumped over your corpse, you could become a vampire. Okay. I'm not sure where they got that idea. But, okay. Yeah. That um, just seems so like arbitrary. Like that could happen to anybody. Yeah. Well, it either could happen to anybody or like. <laughs> In what situation is a is your corpse in a place where like a dog is gonna jump over it? Like that seems like you almost have to like bring the dog in and like play fetch to get that to happen. But whatever. Um, also, uh, if a bo- if someone had died with a wound that had not been treated with boiling water, that person could also become a vampire. Treated? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Old school medicine, fun mm-hmm, times. Mm-hmm. Uh, as anyone watching House of the Dragon can attest. In Russia, vampires were thought to be the reanimated souls of dead witches or people who had rebelled against the Russian Orthodox Church. Okay. Um, there's all sorts of, de- like, I'm, I'm doing very much like a summary of it because it's like if you go to Albania, they have their own things. If right. you go to Greece, they have their own things, you know. Okay. Um, <clears throat> ways to prevent or stop a vampire. So, one thing you would do if you think someone is at risk of becoming a vampire, you bury them upside down, or you can place a scythe or like a sickle near the grave. Mm-hmm. This is to satisfy any demons that might be lurking about. Okay. Um, they think this actually comes from the Greek myth of, I think I forgot to write down if this is specifically what it is, but it's like the whole like putting coins on a corpse's eyes to pay the toll to cross the river Styx. Ah, okay. I see. Um, and like, I guess in Greece, they still do a similar thing to this day where they'll put like a little coin in the pocket of a dead person saying like Jesus lives or something basically huh. to like, you know, pay the toll or whatever. Yeah. Also, you might bury someone with like a sickle blade across the neck of mm-hmm. the body so that if they reanimate, try to sit up, it'll cut off their head. Okay. Um, that just seems kind of like rude. You could sever the tendons at the knees so, so they can't get up. Okay. They can't walk around. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> this one's very strange. You can dump a bunch of poppy seeds on the ground in front of the grave because if the vampire rises, they are apparently compelled to count every single seed before they can move on. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> That myth seems to come from either China or India and has sort of migrated its way into uh, like European folklores. Um, And then the whole idea of staking a vampire like this, you particularly find this in like some of the South Slavic areas. Mm -hmm. Um, Generally, ash is preferred, but you can also use oak or aspen. Apparently, Christ's cross was supposedly made from aspen. So aspen is good for killing vampires, (laughs) which is good because we have a lot of aspen around here. So. And then uh, usually, you know, as is portrayed in movies and stuff, you would stake the vampire through the heart. Uh, But in Germany, (laughs) they would stake them through the mouth because reasons, I guess. Okay. um, Okay. This just seems like a whole bunch of made up shit. Well, I mean. I mean, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, uh, uh, spoiler alert, I'm getting to it, but uh, there there aren't actually vampires. This is why I was saying my story is not actually that creepy because I'm not here to try and convince you that there's actually vampires in the world um (laughs) other things you would do to a vampire or or to someone who you thought was a vampire is you would cut off their head and then bury their head between their feet or behind their buttocks or in a separate grave altogether um Mm -hmm. you would pour pour boiling water over the grave or just like completely burn the body sort of like zombies okay and of course and again like the list of like it's different in each place and there's like hundreds of other things you can do depending on where you are to stop a vampire but these are like the most commonly known ones okay so what was what like leads to the vampire myths and what i'm just gonna ask you a pop quiz Uh, okay (laughs) what do you think happened to the brown family all these people in one family dying of a wasting disease what would you guess a wasting disease. I don't know. I feel like every disease was like a wasting disease. Specifically uh, coughing up blood. Consumption, tuberculosis, mm-hmm. which I exactly. think are the same thing, right? Yeah. 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 That's yeah. what I would, that's what it's, I would hazard. I mean, you want to know where vampire myths come from? It's mm. tuberculosis, specifically tuberculosis outbreaks. And, wow. I, and again, I'm talking like this European, <laughs> European concept of a vampire. Like I'm not talking about, you know, we get into ancient Mesopotamia and the far East and stuff. There's okay. very different versions of a vampire that may not be related, but when we're talking like the count Dracula rising from the dead fangs, whatever vampire that we all know and love, this is a direct result of tuberculosis. Interesting. Okay. Um, so let's talk a little bit about tuberculosis. Okay. Um, so like you said, also known as consumption, Mm-hmm. Um, and it was called consumption because it would literally seem to consume your entire body. Mm, okay. It was an infectious disease that's caused, or I should say it is an infectious disease, usually caused by the mycobacterium tuberculosis. Primarily affects the lungs. It can affect other parts of the body. You can find like evidence of it in the spine. And this mm. is how they've been able to like connect some of these sort of grave desecration practices uh-huh. <laughs> uh, to tuberculosis. Okay. Um, is they'll they'll look at the bodies and they'll see this like these kind of telltale things in the spinal column that uh. show that this person that had tuberculosis. Okay. This was something I didn't know. The vast majority of tuberculi- tuberculosis infections are asymptomatic. Only hmm. about ten percent of 
tuberculosis infections actually become active. Um, about 90% are what's called latent tuberculosis, which is just like you're walking around with tuberculosis. It's just hanging out in your body. You don't know it. You're not contagious. It's not like doing anything. Um, but it could over time turn into active tuberculosis. Okay. No, I watched, oh, I forgot to go through my, um, Sources. Sources. Just real, yeah, yeah. R- real quick. Uh, Wikipedia, uh, The Great New England Vampire Panic. Uh, this okay. is from Smithsonian Magazine. Okay. Uh, another one called The New England Vampire Panic from Heritage Daily. And then a couple YouTube videos, one specifically on the vampire panic. This is from a channel called Extra Credits. And then another one specifically on Mercy on the Mercy Brown vampire incident. Uh, this is from a guy named Jason Allard. And I think it's in the Jason Allard video. He's talking about, uh, I, I did not fact check this stat. But, okay. he's, <laughs> but he says that at this time period, we're talking kind of the 1700s, 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, in like the major cities like London, New York, Boston, wherever, 70 to 90% of the urban populations were probably infected with tuberculosis. Wow. But they wouldn't have known it because they had latent TB, like, you know, asymptomatic tuberculosis. Yeah. Only 10% of those would become active. But once it become active, I've seen different numbers and that maybe because of like different types of treatments over time but anywhere from 50 to 80 percent of active tuberculosis cases will be fatal okay i'm not sure if that's true today um now that we have treatments for tuberculosis but i think it's still i think it's still hard to treat it's hard to eradicate from the body Mm -hmm. in 1815 one in four deaths in great britain was actually caused by tuberculosis wow okay so not something that you want (laughs) right right you want to avoid right And like I said, if you have latent tuberculosis, it's asymptomatic and also not contagious. But once it turns active, it spreads very easily through the air when people cough, spit, when they talk, when they Mm. sneeze. Now, today, you can diagnose tuberculosis with a chest x-ray. You can do cultures of body fluids. There's something called the tuberculin skin test or a blood test. This can actually diagnose latent tuberculosis, so the asymptomatic kind. Okay. But at the time, you know, it was just like someone started coughing up blood and wasting away. And that that was how you knew you had it. Yeah. Some of the symptoms of pulmonary tuberculosis, which is the most common, is what gets in the lungs, would be like chest pains, prolonged coughing, coughing up of blood in small amounts. And then sometimes actually the pulmonary artery would erode and people would suddenly like bleed out. Ugh. Yeah. Okay. So tuberculosis has been around forever. They found evidence of TB in in human remains from like 4,000 BC. They found it in like Egyptian mummies from 3,000 to 2,400 BC. Wow. Uh, The first person to establish sort of the pathology of the disease, specifically noticing that there were what are called tubercles or nodules in the lungs and saying this seems to be connected Uh was an English physician named Richard Morton. And this was in 1689, but it was not identified as a single disease until the 1820s. Um, The first person that theorized that it was caused by microbes spread by people in close quarters to each other was another English physician, a guy named Benjamin Martin. And that was in 1720. Mm, okay. The first tuberculosis sanatorium was opened in 1859 in Poland. Uh, so the idea was to isolate tuberculosis patients and expose them to, quote, healthy air. 
mm-hmm. and let them rest. Also, kind of quarantine them from other people because at this point, people mm-hmm. are kind of putting it together that, like, you know, uh, yeah. It's transmissible. It's transmissible. And it was believed that dry climates and high altitudes were particularly good for DB patients. And this is why out here in the Southwest and all Mm -hmm. through the Rocky Mountains, you had all sorts of tuberculosis sanatoriums and you had people like Doc Holliday, you know, coming out to Arizona. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the first person to actually connect TB to this M tuberculosis bacteria was a German physician named Robert Koch or Koch. Spelled like the Koch brothers, I'm going to say Koch. Yeah, probably. Um, Yeah. This is from 1882. Um, He ended up winning the Nobel Prize in 1905. Now, one vector for infection was infected milk, because I guess tuberculosis shows up in both, like, bovine and humans. Oh, interesting. And it it took them a while to figure out that it was actually the same bacterium, Mm. and that one could pass to the other. But once milk started going through the pasteurization process... That cut down on tuberculosis infections like significantly. Started pasteurizing milk or was it just like, hey, there's a bunch of heebie-jeebies in milk. And if we pasteurize it, it makes it all better. I'm not sure. I didn't look that up. That's a good question. I I think I'm not sure if it was because of tuberculosis, but I do think it was because they were kind of putting together that like we need to like sanitize this shit that's coming out of animals. That I'm sure there's some other podcast who has covered the pasteurization process. So yeah, there was a point at which I was like, kind of like we were talking last week. It's like I could go down the pasteurization rabbit hole, but yeah, I'm not sure that goes along with spooky season. (laughs) Ooh, microbes. So the first success in immunization was achieved in 1906 by a couple of French doctors, a guy named Albert uh, Calmet and Camille Guerin. They created a vaccine called the BCG vaccine. It was first used in 1921, and then it achieved widespread acceptance in the U.S. and Europe after World War II. And if you look at tuberculosis today, it has not been eradicated it's not like smallpox Mm -hmm. but it's kind of been eradicated where like white people live is what it looks like ah like the u.s uh europe very low transmission or very low number of cases of tb these days Mm -hmm. but you get down to south america you get over to africa you get over to parts of asia it's still like africa looks like it's still pretty major problem there Mm, okay um, so, you know, again, uh, white supremacy, colonization, all, right. all the things. Um, and apparently in this country, in the U.S., amongst tuberculosis infections that still pop up here, Native Americans are five times more likely to die of tuberculosis today than Shit. other people. And it, it's all the problems you would think, like lack of access to health care, right. et cetera. So. Ugh. So let's not fool ourselves that it's gone. But at least now we don't blame it on vampires, usually. (laughs) So let's get back to the New England vampire panic or pandemic. I've seen it listed both ways. Okay. Um, So the New England vampire panic. Um, Now, this isn't like the I was trying to figure out if there was like a single event, kind of like the witch trials that sparked it. Like what it seems like is that. You know, these vampire myths started in like the South Slavic countries, the Western Slavic countries, you know, the Mediterranean, Greece, kind of migrated over time into Western Europe, into France, Germany, and then, of course, the UK. Mm-hmm. 
and then from there migrated over to the U.S. And a lot of these areas where you had the vampire panics were like rural. Like it's weird to think of like you know Rhode Island as being rural now, but like yeah, back then it was still you'd have Boston, New York, a few cities, and then big tracts of area that were still very very isolated. Yeah. So not to like impugn rural people. <laughs> with uh, lack of knowledge now you're, now you're gonna education you're gonna flame up the the all of our rural listeners <laughs> all of our all <laughs> of our mega trump listeners but i mean i think it kind of makes sense that like they're only just starting to link this deadly disease that people really didn't understand they're only starting to link it to these microbes kind of in the middle part of the century right it makes sense that this information is not necessarily making it to the rural areas like mm. this obviously as again pre-internet yeah (laughs) so even though like in 1882 they had said okay we found the bacteria that causes tuberculosis the mercy brown incident happens 10 years after that so okay it just seemed like there were these these vampire panics would kind of pop up mostly through new england although there were evidence of vampire exhumations all the way out to minnesota you know it wasn't entirely isolated to new england but it was mostly kind of Vermont, it seems like it was Vermont, parts of New Hampshire, up into Maine, okay. parts of Connecticut, and then primarily Rhode Island. Mm, so, okay. So, like I said, there's no one single event or narrative I can tell, but here's just a couple different stories. So, the first uh, is the Griswold, Connecticut slash Jewett City Vampires. Mm-hmm. So, Griswold, Connecticut, it was, again, it's a, it's a small town near the Rhode Island border. And the vampire panic in this area seemed to center around the Ray family. Uh, they were a large farming family of Griswold, Connecticut. I think this is like they've been able to track down through records, like the sort of the order of deaths in the family. So mm. around the mid 19th century, I think around like eight, around the 1840, yeah, 1845, mm-hmm. uh, the first person who died in the family was Lemuel Ray. He was 24 years old. Like I said, that was 1845. 1851, his father, Henry B. Ray died um okay. 1853 his 26 year old brother elisha ray died and then in 1854 henry ray jr died and again like one of the things that was like hard i think where people weren't making the connection is that this latent tb could take years to yeah. like present itself so someone would die in 1845 <clears throat> everything would seem fine and then suddenly six years later someone else gets sick right so you're not necessarily connecting the two right um, so in the early 1990s, some kids were out playing near a hillside gravel mine, and they found a bunch of bones. Okay. <laughs> and one of the kids like ran home and was like, hey, mom, we found a bunch of bones. And she was like, whatever. And he's like, no, really? And he shows her he had a skull. He's like, look, we found this. So, of course, they're like, call the cops. <laughs> right. Because apparently there was a known serial killer in the area, a guy named Michael Ross. I did not read anything more on Michael Ross. Oh, okay, yeah, whole been, other episode. Whole other episode. But people are like, oh, I wonder if these are more uh, victims of Michael Ross. You know, mm. kind of like our West West Mesa. You know? Right, right, right. So they started, so they taped it off as a crime scene, started zooming, and they were just finding bones and upon bones upon bones upon bones and finally they were like these bones look real old like they're yeah. brown and and so they had them tested and they were like well over a century old so what they determined was like oh we found 
like a family graveyard. Apparently in this area, you would have these, like in these farms, you would just have the family plot and people would, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of times these graves would like get grown over, they'd be unmarked. So, pe- you know, people would forget about them. They'd right. Just, so like we found this family graveyard, they ultimately exhumed 29 graves. They determined it was a uh, sort of two families, the Ray family who I already mentioned and the Walton family. I think they were neighbors. Okay. They brought out this local archaeologist, a guy named Nick Bellantani to investigate this. He determined that most of the bodies, many of them were children. They were interred in simple wood coffins mm. without much clothing or jewelry. Um, this sort of was in keeping with like, you would think of like the kind of Puritan New England sort of burial practices, you mm-hmm. know, their arms would be resting at their sides or over their chests. And this was true of 28 of the 29 graves. But there was one grave that was different. <gasps> and as they were exu- exhuming the graves, they determined. So here's a quote. This is from the Smithsonian uh, Magazine article. It says, scraping away soil with flat edge shovels and then brushes and bamboo picks, the archaeologist and his team worked through several feet of earth before reaching the top of the crypt. When Bellantoni lifted the first of the large flat rocks that formed the roof, he uncovered the remains of a red painted coffin and a pair of skeletal feet. They lay, he remembers, quote, in perfect anatomical position. But when he raised the next stone, Bellantoni saw that the rest of the individual had been completely dot, 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 rearranged. The skeleton had been beheaded. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the skeleton had been beheaded, and then the skull and thigh bones rested atop the ribs and the vertebra. It looked like a skull and crossbones motif, he said. A Jolly Roger. I'd never seen anything like it. So okay, he was like, that's weird. Um, Yeah. What happened there? So and the grave was marked JB55, and they don't know who JB is exactly. Mm -hmm. But they think it's like JB probably died in 1955 or 1855. Okay. So, uh, So whoever this person was, it was clear from the condition of the body, along with some others, that he or she had suffered from tuberculosis. Mm. And then they started looking through the records, and this is when they found, like, you know, Lemuel... Uh, Ray had died in 1845, Henry B. Ray in 1851, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of putting it together. But at this point, Bellantoni still doesn't really understand why this one grave is in the condition that it was. And as they further investigated, he saw that not only were it was like the skull placed on the chest and this Jolly Roger kind of thing with the thigh bones, but the ribs had been cracked open. And he was like, okay, this is real weird. Yeah. So they took the other 28 bodies and had them reburied i'm not sure if they're reburied in the same place or if they took them to another plot but they took this one grave this jb55 and shipped it to the museum of health and medicine to like further investigate and valentoni started asking around he was like have there been other graves that have been found like this Mm -hmm. and he mentioned it to a colleague and the colleague was like yeah it's probably they probably thought this person was a vampire have you heard of the jewett city vampire so apparently, like, the next town over was a town called Jewett City, and a bunch of people had been exhumed because they were suspected of being vampires in 1854. Like, they knew about this even from, like, there were newspaper accounts at the time of this happening. So it seemed likely that this is, was the same case with JB55 because it was right in the same area. Mm-hmm. So there's Nick Bellantoni, this archaeologist. He contacts a folklorist in Rhode Island, a guy named Michael Bell, who had been studying, quote, New England vampires for decades. And this is when Bell explained all the practices uh, to Bellantoni. 
Uh, this is when the fractured ribs finally made sense to Bell and okay. Tony because apparently what they probably did is they broke open the ribs to get the heart out so that they could burn it. Ooh. Yeah. Good grief. Okay. So we'll talk about this Michael Bell guy. So he claims to have studied more than 80 exhumations of suspected vampires, mostly around rural Connecticut and Rhode Island. For whatever reason, this seems to be, like I said, where the vampire panic mostly took hold. Mm-hmm. Bell believes that there are many more graves out there, but most have been lost to time. They may be discovered like these kids just randomly discovered this one graveyard. But he has been able to find like handwritten records and newspaper accounts. And, you know, he's gone through like town archives and things and mm-hmm. found a lot more evidence that this was sort of a widespread practice. So he says, quote, as a folklorist, I'm interested in recurring patterns and communication and ritual, as well as the stories that accompany these rituals. I'm interested in how this stuff is learned and carried on and how its meaning changes from group to group and over time. So like among the things he found were like incredulous city newspaper reporters talking about the quote, horrible superstitions of these rural areas. Okay. Um, he found the daily log of a traveling minister from September 3rd, 1810, where he talks about where this minister talks about the quote, moldy spectacle of one of these exhumations. Okay. And then apparently even Henry David Thoreau mentioned an exhumation in his uh, journal from September 29th, 1859. So it wasn't, this wasn't like a particularly secret thing that was. Yeah, no, this is kind of mainstream. Yeah. And it was different in place to place. So like um, in some places it would only be the family and maybe the immediate neighbors who would participate. Uh, But other times it would be like the town fathers would vote on the matter and then, like, doctors and clergymen would, like, give their blessings. Um, in some communities in Maine and Plymouth, Massachusetts, it seemed like what they would do, they would just simply dig up the body, flip the body over, and then rebury it. Wow. So it goes back to the, like, bury them upside down thing. Yeah. But in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Vermont, they frequently burned the dead person's heart, sometimes inhaling the smoke as a cure. Um, and I'll get to that when I get to the Mercy Brown story. Mm-hmm. Um, this again, this all is going back to European folklore. Sometimes these rituals would be held in secret, like by like lantern light, you know, Mm -hmm. but then like in Vermont, they were like big public spectacles. And even like, they would have like a festival or a big party to like, yay, we found the vampire. Right. (laughs) Jesus. Okay. (laughs) So like in Manchester, Vermont, hundreds of people came to a 1793 vampire heartburning ceremony that was held at a blacksmith's forge. Um, and from the town archives, it says, quote, Timothy Mead officiated at the altar in the sacrifice to the demon vampire, who it was believed was still sucking the blood of the then living wife of Captain Burton. It was the month of February in good slaying and slaying like sledding. So it's like good time for slaying and for burning. For slaying and slaying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so what Bell Bell says that it was like geography was why there'd be these different protocols because in mm-hmm. Rhode Island, like I said, there'd be all these like little family oriented graveyards and plots. And and he said that there in Rhode Island there are 260 cemeteries per hundred square miles. In Vermont, there's only about 20 cemeteries per hundred square miles, and they're big public. Okay. They don't tend to have the like little family plots and stuff. Right. So it was like it made it like harder to do the like secret exhumation. So they just made it like a community event kind of thing. Wow. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's get back to Mercy Brown. 
Because Mercy Brown's probably the most famous of the vampire uh, exhumations of the time. So this is Exeter, Rhode Island, 1892, which just blows my mind because this is like less than two decades before my grandfather was born. (laughs) So this is like pretty late in the game. Yeah. Like I said, George and Mary Eliza Brown, they'd had seven children total. They, it was in order of birth. It was Mary Olive, Edwin, Annie Laura, Mercy Lana, Hattie Mabel, Jenny Adeline, and Myra Francis. Mary Brown was the first to die of tuberculosis in 1883. Like I said, followed by her oldest daughter, Mary Olive, in 1884. And then in 1891, the younger children, Mercy and Edwin, became sick. Mercy died first. She was 19 years old. Mm. Exeter was already known at this time to be this kind of rural, backwoods, very superstitious place. Mm-hmm. There had already been newspaper reports of previous vampire panics in that area. So, of course, after Mercy died, friend, the friends and neighbors, they all went to George and were like, we're pretty sure it's a vampire. And George was like, I don't think so. Like, George was kind of a rational person. <laughs> Look, we've all been talking and we're pretty sure it's a vampire. And he's like, I'm I'm pretty sure. I, I don't think that that's a thing. Okay. Ugh. They're like, oh, it's, but it's super a thing. And he was like, no, it's not really a thing. And they're like, no, really, it's a thing. And then finally he was like, fine, it's a fucking thing. I'll let you dig them up. Um, so the villagers of Exeter, the local doctor, and a newspaper reporter from the Providence Journal all mm-hmm. were present at the exhumation on March 17, 1892. So the article from the Providence Journal came out two days later, and the headline reads, Exhumed the bodies, testing a horrible superstition in the town of Exeter. Bodies of dead relatives taken from their graves. The article makes it clear that both George and the local doctors were like, we're pretty sure this is bullshit. Like, we're basically just humoring the fucking yokels. Right. Won't, just kind of won't leave us alone. Like, right. So they dug up the bodies of Mary, Mary Olive, and Mercy. Uh, Mary, the mother, and Mary Olive, who had, they both died quite a bit earlier. They were basically just bones. Mm. So it's like, well, it's not that. But Mercy, who just died earlier that year, had basically no decomposition. There was still blood in her heart what? and blood in her veins. They were like, well, obs, she's a vampire. Like, we found it. We found the vampire. Um <laughs> I mean, it's weird. (laughs) Well, it's weird until you think about the time period, like specifically the time of year. She died in January. Mm. This is Rhode Island. Okay. No, you're right. Cold as balls. Yeah. She's basically in a freezer. Yeah. They couldn't bury her at first because the ground was frozen. So they put her in an above ground crypt, which was basically a freezer. A refrigerator. Yeah. Yeah. And then they buried her like, I think it was like, just like a couple weeks or something before they then exhumed her again okay so like pretty clear (laughs) what happened but at the time they're like it's it's vampire she's a vampire so yeah poor mercy uh she had her chest cracked open they removed her heart and her liver and burned Mm. them and then they mixed the ashes with water into a tonic and they gave it to edwin to drink they were like this will this will take this will break the vampire curse (sighs) you'll be fine so edwin drinks this tonic like basically drinks his dead sister mm-hmm. um and uh surprise surprise did not cure him he died two months later in fact george lost three more daughters to tuberculosis oh, annie laura and jenny adeline both died in 1895 myra died in 1899 
uh, the only survivor, surviving child to live into the 20th century was Hattie. Mm. George Brown himself died in 1922. Mercy's body was reburied in the Baptist Church Cemetery in Exeter. To this day, she's the most, I think she's the most famous of these vampire exhumations. Mm-hmm. She's she's popped up in novels and movies and pop culture. People still travel to her grave to this day, put and they decorate her grave with like coins and flowers and trinkets. Uh, the town officials have had to chain the headstone to the ground because people keep trying to steal it because people are dicks. What do you want? What are you going to do with it? Those things are heavy. I know, right? Like, I what mean, are you going to do with it? I'm all for like creepy collectibles. I'm looking at my little like pinhead doll that I just got from fucking eBay the other day <laughs> for like $20. I'm all for that. I'm not for like stealing a fucking headstone. Of Here's the thing though, is being. that that's not, it's not like pinhead was a real person. And you're like, right. here's, his, here's his toenail that I ripped <laughs> from his little corpse yeah. when they're, I went to the. There is a line. Like yeah, there's, a line there's a line I'm line. certainly not willing to cross. Oh. I mean, I would probably go visit her grave, but I would not steal her fucking headstone. No. Yeah. And uh, but she's there, there she lies to this day. She's the last documented case of a vampire exhumation in the United States. And that is the story of Mercy Brown and the vampire panics of New England. Um, the thing that wow. blows my mind is just how how recent. It, like it went up into the almost into the 20th century yeah i'm uh, i mean i was about to say i'm surprised you've survived this long but then also living <laughs> through the pandemic and seeing just the utter stupidity yeah. um i guess i'm like well i guess i guess we really haven't learned a whole lot some of us have like mm-hmm. there are you know doctors and scientists out there who were like no we're learning about this stuff and we're creating measures um, so that you don't have to, you know, have your head buried underneath your butt uh, <laughs> right. after you die of consumption. And people are like, okay, sheep, All right? Sheeple. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that's how I imagine these like townspeople. Like I'm imagining like George and the doctors being like, guys, like we've probably read a newspaper article or two about this disease called tuberculosis that they think is caused by a microbe or whatever. And the townspeople are like, nah. No, sorry. You want me to believe that something that I can't see with my own eyes caused Mm -hmm. this death when it's clearly a vampire curse? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's the equivalent of the people who today are just like, what virus, whatever. No, it's 5G towers. It's cell phones. Like, (laughs) yeah. 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 Ooh, great story. There you go. Great story. Okay. Um, are we moving right along? We we can. I have okay. nothing. I have nothing else. Okay. Just didn't know if you needed a break or anything too. Nah, um, <laughs> since I <laughs> ate up all the breaks, I guess. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So I'm not starting with a cold open, but I am also, I'm going to start with a pop quiz a little bit. Okay. So here we go. So Scotty, mm-hmm. what do you know about the Winchester mystery house? Well, I've been there. Fantastic. In high school. Um, uh-huh. It was real weird. I know that I don't know her name, but Winchester lady mm-hmm. built the house or like she was like super eccentric and I don't, she believed something about ghosts mm-hmm. and was hired people to just keep building her house and building her house until she died. So it's got like stairways that go to nowhere and things mm-hmm. like that. And that's basically what I know. And also yeah. that it's, it's like, it's a fun time if you're ever in Northern California. Like, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty cool like uh you know like weird house kind mm-hmm. of a spooky story around it. Uh, story goes that uh, Sarah Winchester is her name. Sarah Winchester. Um, and that she was the wife of William Winchester, who of course owned the uh, Winchester Rifle. Mm-hmm. company and that a psychic medium told her that in order to make up for or protect herself from the ghosts of all of the people who died from no, right. Winchester rifles she had to continue building round the clock day and night on this house mm-hmm. um or she would die it's a really really great spooky story it's also completely false so today <laughs> i'm going to debunk the myth of the winchester mystery house great <laughs> fantastic sources Sometimes. for this are wikipedia the thing that got me into looking into the story is a great twitter thread by grady hendrix and they are at uh, grady underscore hendrix can uh, i just uh interject real quick uh, mm-hmm. Grady Hendrix is one of my favorite horror writers. Oh, fantastic. Um, if anyone has seen on Amazon Prime the movie uh, My Best Friend's Exorcism, he mm-hmm. wrote the novel that it's based on. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. And um, I, I met him very briefly at StokerCon. So. Oh, well. Super nice. Awesome. Guy. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Grady, thanks for writing this cool thread that got me inspired to look into this more. Cool. Um, also, uh, some stuff from biography.com, Atlas Obscura, all that's interesting, and a teeny, teeny little bit from a Los Angeles Times article. Let's start with Sarah Winchester. She was born in the summer of 1839. She, there is no exact date of birth recorded for her. Mm. Everywhere it just says summer, 1839. Yeah. And some places are like, Maybe 1840. (laughs) We're not sure. So Sarah Lockwood Party was the daughter of Leonard Party and his wife, Sarah. Uh, Leonard originally ran a bathing house in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, And after a little while, he was like, "Mm, the bathing business like the bathhouse mm. business isn't really for me. And he found success as a Finnish carpenter, not like from Finland, but like I'm finishing this job. And that was able to provide him with like, uh, he was able to secure financial stability for his family. Mm. Um, he also apparently ran a very progressive household. Like he hung out with like abolitionists and free thinkers and all that kind of stuff. Sarah grew up very, very well educated. She spoke four languages, uh, she was proficient in musical composition, math, and science. Um, she was also the size of a walnut. She <laughs> grew, she like at full height, she was 4'10, mm. 95 pounds. Wow. And she was lovely, a lovely woman. Um, she she eventually earned the nickname the Belle of New Haven. So on September 30th, 1862, Sarah married William Winchester, who was also from New Haven. And it's believed that they like may have known each other when as like when they were kids. Mm-hmm. William was being groomed to take over his father Oliver's shirt manufacturing business, but Oliver was like you know, kind of really like guns. Um, (laughs) And so he took over the volcanic arms company. And from that, he started the Winchester repeating arms company in 1866. Right. Okay. William was like, "Mm, shirts or guns went with guns and he sold his holdings in the shirt company to become secretary of Winchester repeating arms. Okay. Clearly, I think we all, even if you're not a gun person, you have 
heard of Winchester rifles. Um, The Winchester model 1873 rifle was known as the gun that won the West. Mm -hmm. Uh, More than 700,000 rifles were sold from 1873 to 1916. Mm -hmm. BT dubs that rifle won heavy air quotes around one, won the West by nearly eradicating the Buffalo and Mm. murdering thousands of native American people. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've heard, I've read about that. Um, Yeah. Like it's very famously like associated with that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a murder machine. Um, Buffalo bill and Annie Oakley, they would use Winchester rifles to like, Mm -hmm. you know, show off their gun skills. Um, Teddy Roosevelt was a fan of them mm. as well we'll come back to him a little bit later on yeah he, he was a fan of like killing things yeah he general. like yeah yeah i mean oh, like he was which is so funny because he was such like an outdoorsman he was such a like we mm-hmm. have national parks right because of teddy roosevelt mm-hmm. but then he was like but let's go let's have them to kill things right right so that's complicated um <laughs> Okay, so in 1866, Sarah gave birth to a daughter, Annie, but sadly, the baby had something called marasmus, and that's the inability to process calories, Mm. so she died six weeks later from malnutrition. Yeah. It's just- What what do you do about that? Yeah, just like a shitty genetic lottery, I think. William and Sarah never had any other children. Mm. In 1881, so in the span of like this one year, Sarah lost her mother, her father-in-law, and her husband, William. Mm. William actually died of tuberculosis. I was going to ask, like, they all died all together, but just him? William is the only one who died of tuberculosis. Uh, You know, I mean, it's possible that her mother and her father-in-law just like maybe died of old age. Yeah, Um, that makes sense. I don't know. It wasn't listed in my research. Um, and I also didn't go digging for it. Yeah. Uh, Yet so, another rabbit hole. We did not. Right. <laughs> yes. Sorry. It became ur- urban legend that Sarah inherited a 50% stake in Winchester, which was again, like, you know, here, this is the legend. Right. She inherited a 50% stake in Winchester, which was worth approximately $20 million at the time. And it would have been uh, about million in like 2021 money. Mm. It's like ridiculous amounts of money, right? but that's not true. So here's our first debunking. (laughs) Okay. Sarah actually inherited about $362,000 after her mother-in-law passed away in 1898. Okay. So that's the way, like when her father-in-law and William died, holdings and everything went to the mother-in-law. And once she passed, Sarah got the Winchester money. Okay. She also owned 777 shares of Winchester and that paid average yearly dividends of uh, just under $8,000. Okay. And so she was making, she was receiving those dividends from uh, 1880 to 1885. Right. So- not like the obscene wealth that right. I just mentioned. Not like fifty percent, but like a good, good chunk of money. Yeah, right especially for a woman to have, like you know, yeah. she's like she probably yeah, she was probably like I can rock this. In 1884, after the death of her oldest sister, Sarah started developing rheumatoid arthritis, mm. and her doctor was like, "Yo, like a warmer, drier climate would probably help you out." 
Sarah had a lot of like really happy memories of traveling to San Francisco with William. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, like you just mentioned, California was really being touted as, you know, the land of health benefits. Mm -hmm. So she packed her shit and her three remaining sisters and she moved out Mm -hmm. West. Um, Okay. So once she got to California, she purchased a 40 acre plot of land in San Jose, California. And on that land was a quaint eight room cottage. Mm -hmm. Over the next 20 years, Sarah would spend a lot of money Mm -hmm. rebuilding that cottage into a 160 room 24,000 square foot mansion Mm -hmm. done in Victorian style with elements of Gothic and Romanesque architecture. This is Mm -hmm. the house that would later become known as the Winchester mystery house. Right. So again, we're firmly in like the myth, the legend, right? (laughs) Um, So Sarah is grieving. She's haunted by the words of these psychic mediums who told her that she could never stop building or that she would die. And so Sarah built and built and built and built in hopes of like quieting the vengeful ghosts of all of the people killed by Winchester rifles. Right. Due to this curse, Sarah, Sarah never stopped building her mystery house. At the time of her death in 1922, the Winchester mansion had all of the modern comforts of the world. It had indoor plumbing. It had elevators, plural elevators. Mm-hmm. Um, she had a hot shower. She had central heating. There was over 160 rooms. There was 40 bedrooms, 10,000 windows, and two mm-hmm. basements. So, like, cool, super cool. A bunch of really like dope modern stuff, uh, but sure. also a lot of weird shit too. Like, yeah. 2,000 doors, one of which opened to an eight-foot drop into the kitchen mm-hmm. sink. Yep, um, I remember that one. Yeah. Uh, another that opened to a 15-foot drop into the bushes in the garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are staircases that lead right into the ceiling. Right. Uh, beautiful stained glass windows that were inside, so no light would ever pass through them. Right, <laughs> I remember those, yeah. Um, lots and lots of secret passages, which like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean... You, you know, I love a secret passage <laughs> and a cabinet that when opened extended through 30 rooms of the house. Oh, I don't remember that. It was very clear that like no expense had been spared in the building of the house. Right. Um, those stained glass windows don't come cheap uh, <laughs> and neither did the gold or the silver chandeliers or the hand inlaid parquet floors the stained right. glass windows so here's debunking number two the stained glass windows are often rumored to be tiffany's mm. but they incorporate deep bevels which were not typical of tiffany windows but they were typical of i think another Cana- like of a canadian glass company okay yeah. We all know that Canadian glass. That's a second rate. <laughs> well, I mean, they've lasted this long, so I don't know if we want to be <laughs> maligning the Canadian glass. I mean, what are they going to do? They're Canadian. <laughs> um, they're going to send a strongly worded letter. Um, <laughs> so one of the other things that really made people be like, she's really fucking weird, is that Sarah shunned publicity. Mm-hmm. Like she wasn't seen. And here's what was going on is that her hands were really disfigured from the arthritis. Right. And she was missing several teeth. Mm. When she did appear in public, she appeared in a veil in Mm. order to hide her her mouth and her face. Mm -hmm. And as was the custom, she was wearing black because she was in mourning for like everyone, you know. Mm. 
because she'd lost everybody. Right. Um, so you have this like rumored to be insanely rich woman building this crazy house that seemingly has no end. She rarely appears in public. And when she does, she's covered in a veil. Like, of course, yeah, people were a, like something like, weird and spooky is going on. Yeah. It's like fodder for urban legends. In 1895, an article headlined, quote, a woman who thinks she will die when her house is built, appeared in the newspapers and launched the Winchester myth. This is sort of mm. like the first known record of, mm. of this myth. Uh, the article claimed that her neighbors called the house the house of mystery, mm-hmm. that Sarah suffered from severe mental trouble, and that friends who persisted in visiting her despite their brusque reception were told that she had, quote, received a message from the spirit world warning her that all would be well so long as the sound of hammers did not cease in the house or on the grounds. Mm-hmm. After that, a whole bunch of other articles came out and they all just threw gasoline on the fire. They all claimed that Sarah was building and building because of the guilt she felt about the people who'd lost their lives because of the Winchester repeater. And the lie got halfway around the world before the truth had a chance to put its pants on. Right. I mean, it just seems like, yeah, people are like, here's this odd woman building an odd house and people just filling in all sorts of gaps. Yeah. And she like keeps to herself because she's like, "I'm, I'm sad. Right. You know, and I've got arthritis and yeah, my I lost a bunch of teeth. And, yeah. yeah. And people are like, she's obviously involved in the occult. And haunted by spirits. and blah, blah, blah. Yes. Okay. So what really happened? Mm-hmm. Let's go back a little bit to happier okay. times. <laughs> so Sarah and William had developed mm-hmm. an interest in architecture and interior design while they were building their home on Prospect Hill in New Haven. Okay. Sarah was actually a self-taught architect, interior, and landscape designer, Hmm. and she wanted to have a hand in designing the mansion in California. Right. She hired at least two architects. I think there is a record of at least two architects. Okay. But she eventually fired them all, and she was like, you know what? I'm like, I can do this. I'm going to do this. Sure. She designed the rooms one by one. She supervised and consulted with all of the carpenters she hired for the jobs. Side note, because everybody's like, it's this massive house. It was just like being built and built and built and built. And it was just like, it just kept spreading. The Winchester mansion was really not that much bigger in scale from any of the other mansions being mm-hmm. built during that time. Remember that this is during the Gilded Age. Right. And mansions that took decades to build were quite common. Mm-hmm. Like, it happened a lot. It was happening all over New York, <laughs> like well, happening everywhere. I remember because it was the same trip that we saw the Winchester Mystery House. We also visited Hearst Castle. Great example. That place is like way bigger. <laughs> hmm yeah, like that place actually is fucking massive. Whereas yeah. The Winchester Mystery House, I remember it's like big, but it's not, it wasn't yeah. ostentatiously huge. Right. The What was unusual about it was the fact that Sarah, a woman, was doing it and she was doing it alone. Right. You know what I mean? That she didn't have like a man holding her hand through all of this. Her involvement 
should have made her an architectural pioneer of her time, but it seems like it ended up just making her seem weird and Mm. eccentric. Sarah was a woman. She knew like she was a woman who knew what she wanted and how she wanted it done. So if a room or a section or a whole floor was not built to her liking, she was known to just be like, let's, let's start over or Mm. just be like, I don't want to work on this anymore. And move on. And move on. The San Jose News reported in 1897 that a seven-story tower was torn down and rebuilt 16 times. Wow. Um, Her expansions were the cause of walled-off exterior windows and doors that weren't removed as the house grew, and she would stack, like, floors upon floors, (laughs) like, throughout (laughs) different areas of the house. Mm Mm-hmm. Contrary to what popular belief and what tour guides say, Sarah was not constantly working on the house day and night until her death in 1922. Also, we just passed the 100-year anniversary of her death. She died on September 6, 1922. Mm. She frequently paused construction, sometimes for months, to rest because she was doing it herself. So she would just take little, she would take breaks. So was she actually doing like the construction herself or was she like more the planning side? I think she was doing the planning. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming with her age and her arthritis. I was going to say. But she was overseeing it, you know, I mean, she was, Mm -hmm. she was the architect. Right. In 1951, uh, Bruce spoon he was a student at san jose state college he wrote his thesis on sarah winchester and he interviewed people and he reviewed newspaper and magazine articles and he posited that one reason that she kept building was to keep workers employed Mm, which is like a pretty cool way to spend your fortune if you ask me right well and it's like if if she was kind of a shut in and like not socializing with people, it was you know might have been her way to like have some social interaction, you know, particularly if she was like interested in the design aspect of stuff. Right, and I mean I don't know what stuff was like at the time, but she had no children, mm-hmm. so I don't know what it would have been. I don't know, and I don't know like how her other sisters were doing at this mm-hmm. point. Right. But she may have just been like, I mean, I can't, I can't like take all of this. There's not like family I can give it to. So I might as well use it to like employ people. Sure. Okay. So another reason for all of the weird shit in the house was the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Mm. Uh, Very, very brief about this, the 1906 San Francisco earthquake at 512 on April 18th, 1906, Mm -hmm. uh, the coast of Northern California was struck by a 7.9 earthquake. You all remember that last week I talked about the Mercalli intensity scale. Mm -hmm. This earthquake was an intensity of 11, which means extreme. The Mexico City was violent, I think. Yeah, you said it was a nine. That's interesting that it can be lower on the Richter scale, but higher on the Mercalli scale. So it's like less powerful, but more like violent shaking or whatever. Yeah. And like what happens to the... Right. You know, pro- also probably a lot of smush mush. Mm-hmm. Uh, that probably that- using that clip on social media. <laughs> you do that, by the way. <laughs> Just pulled out my headphones. <laughs> um, okay, let's get serious. We're talking about an earthquake. Okay. So that earthquake left over 3,000 people dead and over Mm. 80% of San Francisco completely destroyed. Yeah. It is remembered as the greatest loss of life from a natural disaster in the state of California and one of the worst and deadliest quakes in U.S. history. That was from Wikipedia, so I'm, I'm assuming that that is up to date. 
Yeah, well, I would think in terms of loss of life, you know, because like I know that the the big Alaska quake from what was fifties or sixties was like bigger in terms of scale because it was like a nine point something, but mm-hmm. it was in Alaska, so I was like, you know, I think it leveled Anchorage, but did not have nearly the loss. Right, of life. and I know, like I said, it's the biggest one in California's history and mm-hmm. one of the worst in U.S excuse me, right. U.S. history. So I don't know. Um, but so when the quake hit, the Winchester home got severely damaged. Mm-hmm. The seven-story tower collapsed as well as most of the chimneys, an entire wing of the house, and the third and fourth story additions were destroyed. Wow. Okay. I'm just imagining that tower collapse. It's like the sixth time she's already built it. She's like, yeah. fuck. Yeah, yeah, she's already done it 16 times, and she's like, oh. God, like just when we had gotten it right. Yeah. Okay. So this is, this is where we really start to get into the stuff where people are like, you were cuckoo. You're building this because of a curse or whatever. Mm -hmm. In the aftermath of the quake, Sarah had the rubble cleared, but like that was it. Mm -hmm. So she didn't really do anything else to the property. (laughs) She just like, you know, cleared out the stuff that was broken and then was like, okay. Mm-hmm. So that's where all of this weird shit comes in. Doors didn't open to nothing. They opened to balconies that were no longer there. Right. Pipes weren't just sticking out willy nilly. They were pipes that protruded from where window boxes had once been. Stairs right. didn't lead to nowhere. They led to floors that no longer existed. Mm-hmm. And then they just capped it off. Or yeah. And they were like, okay, that's, that's fine. It's done. I'm no, one no. woman. Okay. Yeah, and I'm 4'10". I can barely get around this place. She's finally at this point just like, fuck it, who cares? Yeah, yeah. I th- I really think that that's what was going on is that she was like, I don't, just close it off. I don't care. Yeah. Sarah chose not to rebuild, which apparently kind of like pissed her neighbors off. <laughs> and that's because they wanted to see all traces. They wanted to erase all traces of the earthquake. Like they, they were, mm-hmm. they really wanted to like move on from the whole thing, you know, but Sarah was like, I, you know, I like it like this. I'm good. So, yeah. Yeah. It's my house, whatever. I mean, she does, she does sound like slightly eccentric in the way of like, kind of not giving a shit what people think. Yeah, that's the thing, right, is that she's eccentric because she's a woman on her own with a lot of money, basically being like, I'm going to just kind of do what I want to do, guys. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it reminds me of Elizabeth Bathory, who's just like being a woman with money and not letting people tell her what to do. It's like fucking burn her. She's a witch. Yeah, a witch. Super dangerous. Right. So, okay. One of my favorite things about the house is that there is a staircase that apparently only rises 10 feet, but is made up of 44 stairs. I remember this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, Sarah's about the size of a walnut and her health is failing. So she had a staircase built with risers that were like three inches tall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she just, you know, it is. I remember. I remember, right. <laughs> I remember walking up that staircase and being like, you know, at six foot, whatever me just being like, this is super uncomfortable. I bet. But I it bet. makes sense if you're like a four foot 10 old woman. Like, yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. When Sarah finally died in 1922 at the age of 83, the Winchester mansion had 160 rooms, 2,000 doors, 10,000 windows, 47 stairways, 47 fireplaces, 13 Mm. bathrooms, and six kitchens. Mm. So nine months after her death, the Winchester house becomes a tourist attraction. Mm. 
the That's house quick. was mm-hmm, the house was in disrepair and it was considered of no monetary <coughs> like not having any monetary value right it was who's going to want to live in it yeah right but it was being rented rented <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine like being like hey, we need a house and then like renting the winchester mansion i mean i 100% 100% would But so it was being rented to a couple named John and Mamie Brown, and they're the two that turned it into the attraction, the tourist attraction. They were just like sod dollar signs. Yes. Mamie was the first tour guide, and she made up a lot of shit. (laughs) I I mean, I, I was watching your face as you're trying to find a diplomatic way to say Yeah. No, she just was like. Mm, I'm just going to make up a lot of shit. Old neighbors and friends and even former employees were like, like, this is, this is some bullshit. Like you're spreading lies about this woman who was, mm-hmm. she was actually like very cool to mm-hmm. us and like never did anything to hurt anybody. And now you're like, like making you're her ruining. Into some freak. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're turning her into a freak. You're ruining her reputation. You're making mm-hmm. her sound like she was this like crazy woman. Uh, so they were, they were not pleased. And they argued that Sarah was actually very clear-headed and savvy in business and finances, even mm. more so than most men of the mm. time. In 1924, uh, Harry Houdini, obviously, uh, <laughs> shows up and he's like, ooh, super cool. I really like this. And it's so weird. Um, and he was supposed to do some kind of like spiritual investigation mm-hmm. of it. But he was like, I can't. I've got to run. I have another engagement. <laughs> I want to do Houdini on the podcast because he was just like a goofy weirdo. And like his magic is actually kind of like the least interesting thing about him. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like he was popping up here. He was popping up at hotels. Like he was, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know, hanging out with HP Lovecraft. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like he was, he was, he was absolutely a weirdo. Um, uh, so in 1973, a man named Keith, Kittle. He was a former Disneyland employee and he took over management of the house. He made Mm. renovations. He went after historical landmark status to protect the home. He launched an advertising campaign that heavily implied that you could run into a ghost if you visited the Winchester Mystery (laughs) House. Like it was like billboards with like the, you know, like a creepy silhouette of the house Mm. on it. And it was very like, you know, like very like roadside attraction yeah yeah like you'll run into a ghost the house is now owned and operated by winchester mystery house llc which is a limited liability corporation which represents Mm -hmm. the descendants of john and mamie brown oh okay yes They managed to monetize this into eternity. Yes. Author Mary Jo Ignofu, Ignofo, she wrote a book called Captive of the Labyrinth. She states that the tour guides are required to follow a script that emphasizes fabrications and inaccuracies. One tour guide told Ignofu, quote, I feel so torn because I have to tell people untruths. Every Mm -hmm. time I go through the house and I have to talk about the 13s and these other kooky things things my heart breaks a little for sarah i have to bite mm. my tongue every time i hear a guest say what a nutcase mm. that's interesting i'm trying to remember what it was like when we went i i remember them emphasizing her being a, a weirdo 
I don't remember the ghost haunting aspect being like overly emphasized, but it was mm-hmm. just, but it very much was like the tone was like, look at this crazy lady and ooh, why did she build those stairs? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I just mentioned the 13 thing. So, like, what's mm-hmm. going on with that? Right. All of that is stuff that got added to the tour after Sarah's death. So it's just like bullshit. Yes. And it was like, it was not just like, okay, we're going to tell these stories. It was renovations that were done after Sarah's death. Oh, so not even stuff she did. Yeah. So you know what? Let's just keep going on the debunking train. Let's do it. Uh, so that tower that was supposed to, okay. So the tower that had been <laughs> rebuilt like 18 times, <laughs> right? it was supposedly used to, t- to summon spirits. Uh-huh. No, it was used to call workmen and it was used as a fire alarm for the grounds. Sure. Yeah. Ghostly music that residents in the area heard coming from the grounds. Of course. Sarah playing the pump organ when she couldn't sleep. Mm-hmm. Seances featuring lavish food served on gold plates that were mm-hmm. hidden in a safe. They cracked open that safe. No gold plates were found. It was like, I think some old like letters and I think a lock of Annie's hair. Mm. you know um also like everyone was having seances back then like let's not like focus on her whether she was or was not i know like arthur conan doyle was having seances yeah houdini houdini yeah houdini's wife yeah like everybody was having a seance guilt over the guns right she was like oh riddled with this guilt over the Mm -hmm. people who'd been killed absolutely not she actually saw winchester rifles as a very successful business and she saw Mm -hmm. guns as a necessity for survival Mm -hmm. so she was like i'm totes cool with the guns there were stories that she turned away two presidents that she refused entry to two presidents Mm -hmm. not true either mckinley visited in 1901 and a committee was formed to arrange accommodations but sarah never extended an invitation Mm. so i think i don't know if he just like showed up and she was like popped over there yeah Yeah. she was like no i'm good today (laughs) (laughs) is it mckinley who is just like a ridiculous president is that is that the one i'm thinking of i don't are you thinking of warren harding Um, i'm thinking of warren harden yeah mckinley mckinley was i don't know much about him other than that he got assassinated okay moving on um (laughs) Teddy Roosevelt went to the Winchester house and okay. The story is Teddy mm. Roosevelt went to the Winchester house and Sarah from behind a locked gate was like, go away. That never happened. He mm-hmm. never would have gone to the Winchester house because it would have seen, it would have been seen as him endorsing a product. Mm. And even though he liked the guns, you couldn't be like, buy a Winchester, you know, he's the right. president. He couldn't do that. The rumor that the house is the most haunted house in the U S this is stuff where it's like, it is probably just, the wind causing sounds and drafts mm. that easily suggestible people might believe to be the spirits of the thousands of people killed right. by Winchester rifles. I mean, this is the unfortunate thing. Like for this uh, episode, I was trying to think of like a good spooky season story, and I was looking into all these hauntings, mm-hmm. and there's very few haunting stories that actually like hold up to like anything like scrutiny. There are a couple. Like at some point, I know we've mentioned it on here, but we should do the St. James Hotel, like. There are a couple that actually sort of like remain unexplained, but like hotels, mm -hmm. hotels are haunted as fuck. Yeah. 
I mean, that um, makes sense that they would. Be. Yes, because the story that I was going to do first was I was going to do a hotel in Chicago. And apparently also, too, and it's probably a story that I'll still do at some time, is La Fonda in Santa Fe is like mm-hmm. hella oh, haunted. Super haunted. Yeah, that's yes. actually a good that I, I actually thought about doing that one, too. Yeah, I um, mean, it's for as far as I'm concerned, spooky season isn't over until we hit Thanksgiving. So right. <laughs> we can continue I mean, to if, do if some haunted stuff. If you're in my house, spooking season's never over. It's year round. <laughs> it's year round. It's year but yeah, round. but like, like I I ran across the Winchester Mystery House and like right, I didn't do any of the reading you did, but it was just right away. It was like, no, this house isn't haunted. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just like, yeah, most of that stuff is. It's going to be hard to find anything that holds up. Yeah. And the the trouble is now, especially with like the sort of lens that the thing is, is that the stuff that is spooky is the true crime stuff. Mm-hmm. And there is, I think, a well-deserved sort of like reckoning and re-examining that's happening with true crime, mm-hmm. um, you know, because because we can't have nice things right. and you can't be interested in true crime for the reasons that like, you you know, you and I have talked about being interested in true crime. Mm-hmm. Then suddenly you have to have, you know, a Netflix series series about Jeffrey Dahmer where people are like lusting after Jeffrey Dahmer. And then it's people gross. are dressing up their kids like Jeffrey Dahmer for Ugh. Halloween yeah. and like, well, and it's in particular when you're talking about like, this is in living memory, you know? So it's like, yes, family members are still alive. You know, it's one thing like Ooh, Jack the Ripper. Okay. Whatever. You know? Or like I did, what's his name? Charles Kennedy in New Mexico, like Mm -hmm. New Mexico's first serial killer. But when you're getting into like recent stuff, it it, it's it gets gross really fast. Well, and I think also too, you know, when you uh, we'll do a little bit of a true crime tangent right here. But I think Mm -hmm. the thing is too is like so much of true crime is centered on like 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 vulnerable communities. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like. It Jeffrey Dahmer killed queer men of color. Like that fucking sucks. And so mm-hmm. it like really it's it's that is something that like I'm not saying that you shouldn't be interested in it because but you, you can, need to you, like, can, you can be interested in it, but you need to remember that there are families of those people. There are, you know, I mean again, Dan Savage is somebody who's like my friend Tony was killed by Jeffrey Dahmer. Like that, like it sucks. It like mm-hmm. And you need to remember that there well, are people, there are actual people. I mean, at even the end of that story, even uh, Jack the Ripper, when you're talking about something that's you know over 100 years ago, but it's still, it's like, who are the victims? It was, you know, lower class women, sex workers, you know, again, well, and vulnerable that's, being, people. that's being debunked now. Well, well I, I was about to say, like, you mm-hmm. know, s- at least I think one or two might have been sex workers, but like others were just but they like were, they, poor women. They were, they were poor, yes. And that, so regardless, it's like we're talking about, like, it's still kind of gross to be like, ooh, spooky about that stuff when it's like, you know, think about the, the reality of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Cause there's, yeah, there's like, there's people, like those victims were people and their families are still so around. And yeah. yeah, all that said, I'm still super interested in true crime, but it's like, like we've talked, and I'm not going to like name check any specific podcast, but there are podcasts who like do it pretty well and handle things sensitively. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, with a certain, you know, even if they're irreverent in some ways, they handle things with a certain amount of respect. And there are podcasts uh, and certain hosts. Um, I'm thinking of one in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to name because he's famously litigious, but uh, who's like 
famously a garbage person you know Mm -hmm. and it's like you you know you just you got to be i don't know if you're going to deal with any kind of like that kind of subject matter like don't be a dick about it yeah yeah but i mean i think that's the thing is that like we're they're just there are a lot of dicks yeah the jeffrey dahmer thing with this new like i had no interest in watching the series and then i have less now because of like all the fucking like thirst trap tiktoks about it and stuff yeah i mean the thing is is that i'm like evan peters exists outside of right like yeah stan evan peters all you want he's a great actor he's you know very cute for a white dude like (laughs) you know if if that's your kink like absolutely have at it he has a whole body of work he has a whole creepy body of work that is all fiction fiction yeah go and you know be real horny for that Mm-hmm. absolutely yeah but just like i don't know just like be a human being okay anyways back to yeah. the winchester mystery house okay. <laughs> um okay so why was everybody like so super ready to make sarah shoulder this myth mm-hmm. right to like put this narrative of her being like this crazy lady who was haunted by these ghosts and you know mm-hmm. succumbed to this curse over her her husband's company. Okay, well, your friend, friend of the pod, Gary Grady Hendrix, mm-hmm. <laughs> suggests that while Sarah herself didn't feel any guilt about the Winchester repeater, America did. Mm-hmm. The country looked at the horrors that had been perpetrated as we expanded west and decided, this is this is all a quote from him, and decided quote that we didn't do it, the guns did. And as the most prominent woman associated with Winchester repeaters, Sarah Winchester became the repository for our guilt. Her silence and her connection to the destruction of the West turned her into a screen for us to project our guilt onto. Talented and grief-stricken, Sarah Winchester built a beautiful house, mostly by herself, but she'll be remembered forever as someone she wasn't because we can't stand who we are. End Mm. quote. Um, Mm. And that is the debunking of the Winchester Mystery House. If you are interested in learning more about the true story of the Winchester Mystery House, you can check out Mary Jo Ignofu's Captive of the Labyrinth, Pamela, I'm going to say Haig, it's H A A G, Um, Pamela Haig's. Hog, Pamela Hogg's book, The Gunning of America, and mm-hmm. Colin Dickey's Ghostland and American History in Haunted Places. Mm. Um, those are all good. Call, I know for a fact, because I just looked it up uh, and I was like, ooh, I might want to read that. Uh, Colin Dickey's Ghostland and American History in Haunted Places is basically him kind of doing this with a lot of famous haunted places in america so kind of he goes and he he's going to really get like the true story i don't know that he wants to call it like a debunking but he's going to be like yeah like what happened in these places right yeah um and a lot of it like i saw a very brief thing about some place in salem with like a secret stairwell behind the fireplace Uh uh-huh that it was this whole thing about like oh and the witches yeah that was built way after Yeah, no, that's trials. I've I've actually been there. That was the House of Seven Gables, which was the inspiration for the Nathaniel Hawthorne story, novel, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's been like remodeled a bunch of times. And then they basically remodeled it to make it match his story. Like he was inspired by the house, but he changed a bunch of stuff. He added secret passages and stuff to me. And they were like, 
let's turn this into a tourist attraction and build in a secret passage. So, right. And the yeah. thing is, is like, again, the Salem witch trials in and of themselves are horrible. Like you could just have mm-hmm. an interest, you know, in, in that. And in, you know, sort of seeing the, what's the word that I'm, I mean, the literal like witch hunt that happened mm-hmm. there and learning about that without, right. We could just listen to our episode swimming the witch with Rebecca. Right. Lund. Without having to like throw a bunch of frosting on there. Right. Exactly. Okay. That's all I've got. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. That's interesting. Cause like, I mean, if you have you been to the Winchester mystery house? No, I've always wanted yeah. to go. And I think when we went to out to LA in 2019, I was like, can we do that? And you were like, it's like, far away it's like eight hours yeah no yeah it's up by san francisco but um it is weird like it's it's a weird house Mm -hmm. but the way you're describing the process it's like well it makes sense why it's weird it's like and it sounds like she was she was doing what like i think a lot of home contractors do Mm-hmm. Like like people who are like I'm going to build onto my house and like you know at home sort of do it yourselfers mm-hmm. is they kind of like lose the forest for the trees and they'll be like I'm going to build this addition I'm going to build an office and then oh, I'm going to tack on uh, this onto it and, then, and after right. a while it just turns into a bit of a patchwork yes know? yeah like we've all seen houses like that yeah on a bigger scale yeah I mean the house that we just did uh the second weekend of our show at is a house that is like nearly the original house is nearly a hundred years old mm-hmm. um and it's a cool little maze of a house because like you keep going and you're like wait what mm-hmm. wait hold on oh wait there's more oh yeah God, there's more and it's clear that they were just making it well, bigger. there's a there's a bunch of like restaurants throughout Northern New Mexico that used to be like some family home that they at some point turned into a restaurant. They built on this edition and, and it's the same thing. They're just like weird caverns that you kind of like make your way through. Yeah. Um, what is, what is the restaurant that's in old town? La Hacienda is that the name of the restaurant. I'm not sure which one. I mean, there's a bunch down there. <laughs> there is, but it's the one that's like actually like on the plaza. It's not high noon. It's not church street. Okay. I was wondering about <laughs> church street. No, I think you're I right. La Hacienda. I think it's La Hacienda. And the thing is, is like church street, high noon, hella haunted. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we should do New Mexico haunted places mm-hmm. for the next spooky episode. Cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of spooky stuff out I mean, here. I thought of doing La Fonda. Or, or St. James for this episode. So yeah. we, should, we should do that. Yeah. Um, but there is a story, a ghost story that we heard when we did a ghost tour that there was, and I want to say it was, it was somewhat modern because the whole thing is that the, the woman has, her fingernails are painted, I think, bright red. Mm-hmm. And it was something, I think it's something terrible that it's like a woman who was working at this restaurant. And I think she had a guy who was like obsessed with her. Mm. And I think he may think he killed her. Um, oh, like I think he I came think and he like waited for her. Yeah. And so her ghost haunts the bathroom. And yeah, so yeah, what yeah. it what it is is that it's like you'll people say that they see her like reaching under the stall and like mm-hmm. ask like either handing over or asking for toilet paper, but mm-hmm. like there's nobody else in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, there's I, also I remember this, that from the ghost tour I did them there. There's yeah. also the super creepy story about the the little chapel in Old Town, and there's the woman mm-hmm. in black who's in there mm-hmm. um and i think but if I that chapel f- i was just reading about that that chapel's not even old that was like built in like the 70s or something really yeah interesting well yeah, was a, that was a whole story it was like it was like a woman's cooperative built it or something interesting yeah <laughs> uh 
hold on. What was I going to say? The, when we did the ghost tour, I think they said that the last time that they had seen the crying woman in the chapel was after September 11th Mm. and that she was in there. And apparently it's the type of thing where like, she's in there and she's like head to toe in black, like veil everything. Mm -hmm. And I think if I remember correctly, it's that she is like, she starts quietly crying Mm -hmm. and then it just builds and builds and builds until she's like wailing. Mm -hmm. Another funny story. I have a friend who uh, works for a tour company here in Albuquerque and was on the tour and does the whole thing in old time. Like here's this used to be a brothel and this person died here and all this stuff. (laughs) And then takes them past the hotel park central, which Mm -hmm. if you are from Albuquerque and you know anything about the hotel park central, it used to be a mental hospital. Like recently, like, yeah, like not 150 years ago. Like I I think think in the two thousands, it was still a mental hospital. We should look that up. I mean, at least up to like through the eighties and nineties because it was Memorial hospital. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was like, doing the spiel about like this is a mental hospital and it's allegedly haunted and apparently a couple of guests on the tour came up and they were like we work in the mental health industry and we think that it's awful that you were like spreading stigma about this and my friend Mm -hmm. had to be like this is what that hotel wants us to say about (laughs) this location right and they were like well you need to go and my friend was like not my job yeah Absolutely not. Not there my job was to the, do that. Speaking of haunted mental hospitals in Albuquerque, there was the one, I, I think they finally tore it down off of North Edith. I think I've told you about it. Way the hell North Edith. If you're not from Albuquerque, this means nothing to you, but kind of way up in the North Valley. And if you drive by, if you drive by there, I think the gates are still there and they're like spray painted, like stay out, no entry, whatever. Um, and of course, I've broken into that place with some of course, a couple you times. <laughs> but that place was about... creepy as fuck. Those um, places are always creepy as fuck. Well, and apparently that pl- part of why that place was creepy because it was a band. I think it was again, it was a working mental hospital up into the 1990s, and then it just sat abandoned mm-hmm. for years, and it became part of like local lore of like you know people trying to get in there on Halloween and saying there was a satanic coven back there and blah blah blah. I think but the it, thing. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just gonna say apparently what was actually going on back there is like biker gangs were like selling meth and stuff so it's like yeah don't don't break into that place because you're gonna get shot not because right. you're gonna run into a ghost right um, um well that was the thing that made me laugh when my friend was telling me this too is that i was like you're gonna sit there and you're gonna be like oh don't tell like you stigmatized mental but you want to talk about the history of mental hospitals in this country mm-hmm. you want to talk about what, what was it wasn't it gerardo or no, Geraldo. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Gerardo from the 90s. Yeah, no, Geraldo. <laughs> Geraldo. Oh my God. That's the best. Um, yeah, no, that's where he kind of established himself. Was right. Big, because he went in the one, like something on the East Coast, right? It was like in New York uh, or New Jersey. Sh- now this, I want to fact check. Um, I know it was oh, in New York. Mm-hmm. What I don't remember is if it's the same Staten Island mental hospital that the Cropsey legend is based around. Uh-huh. 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 Um, Hold on. I'm going to There's also the, um, while you're doing that, I'll talk about one place I always wanted to like investigate. And unfortunately you can't anymore. I think they finally tore it down was the, the Danvers uh, mental hospital in Danvers, Massachusetts, <sighs> which is supposed to, was supposed to be one of the most haunted places in the country. They actually shot um, 
a horror movie there called Session Nine, which is like creepy as fuck. And then I think they tore it down and built condos. And like, it's just like the facade is the only thing that's still there. Right. Okay. So the Geraldo, sorry, mm-hmm. not Gerardo, uh, <laughs> Geraldo went and checked out Willowbrook State School that was on Staten Island in New York. And it ran from 1947 until 1980. 19- 87 and then let's look up i'm looking up cropsy i'm doing it right now uh let's see who gets there first blah 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 it Uh, doesn't new york city urban legend staten island staten island it's probably the same place it sounds like uh records this is it's hard to tell no this was uh the pilgrim psychiatric center in brentwood new york oh interesting oh no uh and then he worked as a custodian so the guy that the cropsy legend is based on he worked as a custodian at the willowbrook state school um so yeah no that willowbrook state school i think it was like famously like it was terrible the documentary was awful yeah, like it was like this is and, like this is terrible conditions. And, and that like, was like in the 70s or 80s. Yeah, and that's my thing is that I'm like, look, man, I you know, I'll I'll leave room for the fact that like you were working with like the tools that you had, but the tools that you had were like electroshock therapy and mm-hmm. you know, and and a lot of these places, maybe you're maybe not your hospital, whatever, dude who was on this tour, but mm-hmm. a lot of hospitals those places were just dumping grounds for people who right and so the whole like your stigma yeah you're stigmatizing mental health issues no it's you're stigmatizing places that were like sites of immense human suffering yeah like it's not because there were like quote crazy people there it's because of like it's because of what you guys were doing to this right so step the fuck off um okay hold on we were talking about that you said the thing about the have i mentioned the pike house on this podcast i know i've talked to you about it in real life yeah i was gonna say i know i've heard of it but i don't know if you've mentioned it go ahead and uh, okay so the pike house and then we'll wrap this up um so the pike house uh was an old fraternity house in san marcus texas where i spent Mm. some time going to school um in the early aughts and I mean, it looked like a plantation home. Like it had, I mean, it, it, that, that's what it, it looked, that's what it looked like. It looked like a plantation mm-hmm. home. And apparently it had been the Pike fraternity house. And mm-hmm. then I don't know what happened, but they just like left. Mm-hmm. And it looked, I mean, it almost kind of looked like they just, that like somebody was like, we need to get out. And they were like, oh, okay, bye. <laughs> But so people started breaking in to it and we would go there in groups and you would get super scared and all of that stuff. And there was a friend, mm-hmm. we had a friend, like the first time we went, he was like, this used to be like a mental institution. And we were like, oh my God, you know, of course we're all like, yeah. you know, 20, 21. Right. Oh my God. Like, what did they do here? And he was like bloodletting. And somebody was like, what is bloodletting? And he was like, I don't know, but like, <laughs> I know that it's bad um (laughs) it was originally i think built as like a home for boys like Mm, there is the cornerstone on the building that says like when it was built and all that stuff and i think that's what it was originally for i will say we broke into that house and you know people went in there with like red paint and like you know blood bloody handprints on the walls and that kind of stuff but i will say that two very weird things happened in that house Mm -hmm. One of them, I don't think I was there for this one. I think, uh, I think 
my best friend told me this, that she had broken in there with somebody. And I say broken in, you climbed in through an open window. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, we weren't like, you know, taking doors off hinges or anything. Mm -hmm. But they had gone in there and they were so like you would walk in and it was like a main like living space. And then if you walked, like if you were to walk in the front door, Mm-hmm. a main like living space. And then behind that was a kitchen. And then there were like staircases that went up. And I'm like, I can't remember if it was two or three stories. I think it was three. Mm-hmm. The top floors were probably what had been like the the fraternity like rooms. Right. And I think if I'm remembering this correctly and she can fact check me on this, I'll come back to it later. But she was up there and she was, we would always go and big groups like eight to ten people and we would hold mm-hmm. on to each other and traipse through the house right like she went there with like just a dude <laughs> we were so fucking stupid probably Ugh. used her as a human shield yeah <laughs> but they were upstairs and it was something like they heard something and they turned around and it was something like all of the doors down the hallway just blew open mm. and they were like we need to get out of here now. Yeah. Um, I was in there another time with a guy who took a video camera in there and he was recording and uh, we had asked him later, I think, you know, we were like, did you catch anything weird? And he's like, there's only one thing that I caught that's weird. Everything else is like just what it appeared to be that night. And he showed me and it's when we're going through the kitchen and he, it's a big, like, you know, like kind of industrial mm-hmm. kitchen, right. you know, for a, a fraternity house. And he's like, he'd walked in and he's sort of panning from right to left. And there's... I'm trying to remember how it was. I know it was a wall and I think there was like a fridge, right? So maybe it was like a little half wall that was like, you know, where the fridge was kind of tucked Mm -hmm. into like a nook. It was something like that, but he's panning and he's not going super fast or anything. He's just kind of like slowly panning and the wall moves. That's like some Hellraiser shit. Yeah. And we were like, what is that? He was like, I don't know. And I feel like there was a weird like sound with it too. Mm. And we watched that clip like over and over again. And I was like, that wall is moving. And he's like, yeah, I don't. That's fucked up. Yeah. When we were at that North Edith Asylum, Mm -hmm. uh, we were walking around and one of my friends was in front of me and another friend was behind me. And we were walking through this kind of big room. And I heard this like, gasp it sounded like a little kid going (gasps) like that Mm -mm. and i stopped and i looked back at my friend who was behind me and she looks at me she's like yeah i heard it too Mm -mm. and like our other friend was like ahead of us so it's like couldn't have been him yeah yeah there are a couple uh fun little ghost stories in los alamos like there's the i i I thought of doing this one but i can't find anything on it there's Mm. mason ghost there's a one of the lab facilities has a mile long tunnel that's it's the mason physics facility and it's they shoot particles down this tunnel uh-huh uh, it's like some particle physics thing my dad used to work there uh-huh. um and uh supposedly uh someone late at night uh back in like the 70s uh saw like a pioneer woman like walking through the tunnel <laughs> but like Absolutely i couldn't not. i that was like a famous story when I was a kid, but I couldn't find anything on it. And then the other one was um, Peggy Sue Bridge, which I probably told you about, which was, it was a bridge that went across one of the canyons in Los Alamos. It was right behind the Jewish center. Uh-huh. Um, and the story was back in the fifties, some teenage girl named Peggy Sue, like I, she'd gotten dumped by her boyfriend or something and went out and like jumped off the bridge. <gasps> and so, uh-huh. uh, like the story when I was in high school, I never actually did this because uh, I hung out with 
like Mormons who never got into trouble, but like uh, <laughs> the story in high school, or like the high school kids would always like dare each other to go out onto the bridge at night because supposedly Peggy Sue would try to push you off. <gasps> um, but I did a little reading on that. So apparently the actual true story was that there's graffiti out there. Someone wrote the name Peggy Sue out there and that's where the name comes from. Oh, apparently uh-huh. it was some guy like in high school in the fifties was trying to impress some girl named Peggy Sue that he was into. And so he went out there and like wrote her name on the bridge mm-hmm. And then they dated for like two months and she broke up with him and he was all sad. And then he like went off to the army or whatever. And he came back 20 years later and this whole urban legend was born. Had sprung up around basically him just trying to show off to some girl who dumped him. That's there fantastic. We there we go. There's that. Debunking Pe- Peggy Sue Bridge. <laughs> um, I feel like the Manal school here in town because of oh, how it started out. That place there's got to be something to be fucking haunted. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't it really know that much about it, but I mean, I'm looking at the website right now, and it's like what started out as a Presbyterian boarding school for Spanish-speaking boys. Mm. And I'm like, mm. that sounds suspicious. It does. Yeah, it has to be haunted. Okay, maybe we'll do maybe we'll do New Mexico hauntings. Yeah, there's for, also for our next. There's Yoraka Mesa. I won't get into it now, but maybe that's what I'll do. Uh huh. Supposed uh-huh. to be the most haunted place in New Mexico is Yoraka Mesa. So. Really? I would think it yeah. would have been the penitentiary. That's also super haunted. Um, yeah, that I feel like that's such a like terrible story. It's such a terrible story. We're just gonna yeah. say if you want to learn more about that, just go and 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 look into it. It's it's. I think it's too grim yeah. to do here. It's I, I agree. If you want to really know the story of the prison riot, uh, read The Devil's Butcher Shop. Yes, which I did when I was way too yeah. young to read <laughs> that book. You're telling me that. Yeah. Yeah. No, but there's, there's way, some way, other. Way, too young. The, the Yoraka Mesa is a pretty good one. I'll have to do some research into it. But Yeah. Yeah. But it's super cool because Visit Albuquerque has been doing all sort of like haunted places in Albuquerque, which is cool. like our like uh what is it like our travel and visitors bureau um mm-hmm. yeah. has been has been doing instagram stories about <laughs> kind like, of most haunted leaning places. into it yeah yeah that which i cool. think is fantastic there's a lot of there's a, a lot of history out here and a lot of it is creepy and spooky yeah yeah okay All right. well we'll see you i guess after halloween like you said we're extending spooky season as long as we want exactly so. we i mean who knows maybe we'll get into spooky uh holiday stuff too because as we've said mm-hmm. It's not a lot of stuff to do about the holidays. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. Uh, so it'll last as long as we want because this is our podcast. Um, if you go trick-or-treating, make, make sure that, you know, I don't know, Pinhead isn't in your Snickers bar. <laughs> um, <laughs> or that the eye of Sauron or all that stuff that I'm seeing on Twitter. Um, <laughs> midterm elections are coming up. So I just voted today. Yes, you did. I saw that. I'm going to try and vote this week. Go out there and vote. Vote, vote, vote. Stay weird. Stay curious. And you know what? We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. So listen, friends, we'll blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true. And that's the weirdest thing.